everybody, Jonathan Doyle with you here. Welcome aboard, friends, to the Supply Side Podcast. So glad you found us. However you did, however you uh, came across us, whether you've been recommended to the show or you found it another way, welcome aboard. I hope we can really bring you some value in the episodes ahead. In this short episode, which is essentially a pilot, I wanted to lay out the purpose for the creation of the podcast for the website, uh, what I'm hoping it may be able to achieve both in my own journey of development and uh, potentially in yours. And uh, I want to sort of lay out, I guess, the basis, the foundation of where the content's coming from and the sorts of people that we're going to be talking to. I guess my goal in this is a journey of education for myself as somebody who has spoken live around the world to just shy of 500,000 people. I've uh, learned over many years that I tend to learn the most by teaching. In a previous career, many years ago it seems now, I was a high school teacher. That's where my journey started and it was a great joy working with young people. And uh, I'm older now, but the energy to communicate and to teach is still there. And I just find that I, I gain so much from uh, teaching principles as I learn them. It's sort of a reinforcement process. So I want to be very clear with you at the start that I'm on a journey here of learning more and more about uh, supply side economics, or as uh, my great friend Mike Kendall would say, uh, predictive classical economics. It's sort of a lost art. We're going to be doing a bit of archaeology on the model. But uh, how did I get here, I guess, is the obvious question of all the things I could be doing why is classical economics, supply-side economics, something that's become, I guess, the focus of my work in this season of life? So I'll take you back through the story. As I was preparing the episode, a couple of things really stuck out for me. My father, who died uh, sort of about 12 years ago, was an interesting guy. He spent his life working in uh, senior management, the construction industry. He hated every single second of it. So one of the reasons, I guess, I'm doing something like this is that I'm passionate about doing things that uh, I find value in and hopefully bring value to others because I grew up as the son of somebody who never had that opportunity. But I remember that my father struggled for many times as we were growing up with holding on to work. Uh, we had to move a great deal as a family, which was very, I guess, uh, tumultuous for us, quite challenging. And as I've taken this journey in political economy, classical economics, I've slowly come to realize that I was born in 1973 and so much of my father's struggles in unemployment were happening around those 1970s, 1980s decades. And as I've learned more and I've seen the upheaval of those years and so many of the economic factors that were driving that, I have been far more, I guess, uh, forgiving in my view of him. And I've realized that uh, I would I would sense now that a significant part of his journey and the suffering and the pain and the difficulty that he went through was caused by these sorts of macroeconomic trends that he had no control over. So I think I've begun to realize as I reflect and as I very much pay attention to what's happening in the world at the moment that these are not abstract concepts. It's so easy in terms of political economy and supply side and economic theory to to assume that these are just the purview of remote academics. And while we have a great need for deep academic study, these concepts deeply shape the lives of real people. And they are shaping the lives of real people. And 
I guess the other thing that we're witnessing at the moment is extraordinary global shifts and changes. So we're seeing it in the geopolitical space. We're seeing, I mean, I, I'm always hesitant to date a podcast. Uh, I guess what I will say, depending on when, you, when you're listening to this episode, is we're still in the grip of COVID. We're seeing enormous tensions between uh, the United States and China in terms of trade, but also militarily over Taiwan. Uh, and a whole bunch of other factors globally that are seeing, I guess, what we would term tectonic shifts in culture, in finance, in geopolitics. So I think it's more important than ever that we have a clear understanding of what Jude Winiski would say is the way the world works. And a lot of this show and the content is going to be based on Jude's fantastic work. We'll get to that soon. Look, to finish off the story part of this, my journey into this, so that was my father's background and, and the upheaval that he went through. But I remember being in uh, sort of junior high school and having a small business teacher who was really good, uh, it was a really good teacher, and I had a real love for business. I was fascinated by it. I was uh, genuinely interested in double-entry bookkeeping, and I was really starting to fly. I was really starting to go well. And then again, because of the employment issues, we had to move. And we moved right across the country here in Australia to another part. And I ended up at a school and, you know, things weren't going as well. And it was a real struggle for me to move. But I remember, and I say this to people often, being in about the 11th grade and I had elected to do economics. The only problem was that, uh, <laughs> ironically, I happened to uh, end up with what I think was probably the worst economics teacher in the world. Um, this person was truly terrible and uh, was, I'm sure, had many wonderful traits and many gifts, but teaching, and especially teaching economics, was not one of them. And I don't want to lay blame entirely at their feet, but I remember being fascinated by economics, but being terribly lost and swimming in a sea of uncertainty and eventually as young males often do, when you fail enough times without the right support, you give up. So there's been, you know, then my career went in different directions and I built, you know, a very successful business in the in the global uh, media and education space and had a fantastic career as, uh, I guess, somebody who spoke all over the world, uh, major keynotes up to sort of 10,000 people plus. But I find myself now at the age of 47 Entering into this world of political economy, classical economics, macro macro trends, global finance, very, very late. And I'm going to be honest with people about that. Again, that's why I'm trying to teach this so that I learn it. But I'm going to be very much educated by, by listeners and by the guests that we're going to be lining up in the episodes ahead. But that's kind of the story that... Uh, I felt that I'm coming back in life to something that I really enjoyed and I'm having to work very hard, very much later in life than I would have liked to catch up. So have you ever had that experience in life where your life went in a particular direction and you can't remember how, what was the catalyst, how it started? Have you ever had that experience where you're kind of like several weeks or months you're into something and you're like, how did, I, how did this all start? And I've been fascinated because... You know, COVID changed so much. All my international travel shut down, and uh, which was a pity because it's late 2020 at the moment. But uh, I had some fantastic overseas travel and major keynotes to do, and all of it obviously um, was over with with COVID. So, like a lot of us, I had all this time, and uh, I'm somebody that does an enormous amount of training. So I do a huge amount of uh, 
very high level training, uh, cycling, running. So I started to listen to things and I was listening to stuff on YouTube and I do not remember how it all started other than I came across Mike Maloney's classic series, The Hidden Secrets of Money, and I'm sure some of you have seen it. And that's where it started. It just I watched his series and it was like a road to Damascus moment, and I'm sure some of you might critique aspects of it, I'm not sure, but I watched that series and I was like, uh, how did I miss this? And uh, I, that started a journey for me, which has really led into some really wonderful places. And I think if you also had the experience that sometimes when there's a real positive movement in your life and doors open and people are responsive and the right books cross your desk. And uh, so that's where I guess I'm up to. And uh the other key people in that journey um lately there's been guys like george gammon whose stuff i think is really interesting and uh he you can't listen to him you have to watch him because he does this you know a lot of great stuff on whiteboards and i've enjoyed uh, reading nathan k lewis's work on gold standards so i've uh, been reading his stuff carefully we're going to interview nathan next week so gold standards stable money his book the magic formula he's going to be our first guest next week uh this whole idea of low taxes and stable money low taxes and stable money you know there's this great line this is in chapter two of his book i got it sitting here in front of me and he says uh this is on page what do we got here page 21 he says no process of business or investment is aided by the government confiscation of participants property so that's Nathan writing in his most recent book. But uh, also in his book, there's this fantastic quote going back to the 14th century by a great Arab writer, Ibn Khaldun. And he says, the most important factor making for business prosperity is to lighten as much as possible the burden of taxation. And a final great quote uh, in Nathan's book here is from Karl Marx, who says, there is only one way to kill capitalism by taxes, taxes, and more taxes. Now, some of you would disagree. It seems there's more than one way to kill capitalism. It seems that uh, quantitative easing, stimulus, money printing seems to also be having a pretty good shot at it as well. And that's the other thing that's really pushed me into this space is the belief that, I guess you kind of grow up with, that, that the majority of people are good actors, that... Uh, and then you really start to discover what's happening with central banking and with a lot of, I guess, crony capitalism. And you start to realize that uh, maybe it's when you have kids. i got three young kids and I'm like, you start to realize that the way that the game is being structured is quite extraordinary. And that there are people in very high places who are benefiting from, you know, the rotting of the system. That's quite extraordinary. I think it was Peter Schiff recently who said that you know you don't go into politics to make money you go into politics to make uh, to make your money after politics you know some of the the connections in the systems and I and I said to my wife Karen today we went for a long walk and I was talking about the fact that one of the great challenges we all face is that our politicians you know they have three or four year terms and then they move on and and the will to to run on a ticket of debt reduction or austerity or reducing government spending is political suicide. So we can hopefully all agree that the system at the moment around a lot of the political and, and central banking stuff is a system where key people are benefiting extraordinarily. Look at the Cantillon effect, you know, the people closest to the government money tap 
benefit the most and have obviously very little incentive to change their choices and their policies. But we know that you know when you've only got a three or four year time horizon in political leadership or even in central banking, then you're not likely to make some of those hard decisions that might lead to some short-term suffering but to some long-term benefits. So, you know, Keynes' famous quote, in the long run, we're all dead. So there's a, there seems to be a lack of long-run thinking at the moment. And of course, you know, it seems we're due for some kind of significant shift, reset, don't want to use the word great reset, but uh, in our monetary system, you know. I think it's worth remembering, of course, that the stability that we've experienced roughly since the end of the Second World War doesn't really have uh, a historical president, not a precedent, not this long of stability. So we have entire generations that have grown up with relative peace and prosperity who have no context for what can happen when the system really breaks down. So I guess I'm an evangelist for the, the, the most basic aspects of the classical economic model which Jude Winiski, of course, would refer to as supply side. And that's where I want to pick up on Jude's stuff, and I'll wrap up in a moment. But the basis of how I want to structure the podcast is bringing in a lot of great guests, which I hope will be a real blessing for you and uh, and lead to some great discussion. But uh, Jude Winiski, if you're not familiar with him, wrote the seminal text, The Way the World Works. He coined the term supply side. But he has something, a, a little-known thing called the Supply Side University, which I came across again uh, through Mike Kendall. Uh, so go and check out Mike's work on uh, Man on the Margin. If you just do a search for Mike Kendall, Man on the Margin, his writing is excellent. And he got me onto the Supply Side University, and then we contacted Jude's widow, who was very gracious enough to allow me to use the content uh, as, as a platform, as a basis, as a foundation for some of what we'll be doing. So... This is going back to 1996, and this is the first uh, short post. So the Supply Side University is basically Jude responding to questions, uh, to a question-answer format. So he talks about a guy called Kevin Isbister, who reached out to him and said he wanted to learn more about economics. He'd read some of Jude's stuff in Wired magazine, and, uh, and Jude replied that he's happy to help when he could. If uh, Kevin was happy to submit questions, Jude would get to them one at a time when he had the time. So, as I wrap this up, I'll just give you the basics here. Um, Jude replies to Kevin, he says, I coined the phrase supply-side economics to put a fresh face on classical economic theory, which dominated Western thought from the late 18th century to the Great Depression. Adam Smith and Karl Marx were both supply-side in the sense that they pondered questions of wealth creation, production, as opposed to management of aggregate wealth consumption. So he goes on to say here, Jude states, does the economic world revolve around the producer of goods or does it resolve around, revolve around the consumer of goods? And he refers to this as the difference between the kind of Ptolemaic and Copernican views of the cosmos. So the Egyptian uh, pharaoh uh, Ptolemy uh, was the you know and, and the I guess the uh, scientists working for him the cosmologists that existed at the time built a theory of the cosmos based of course on the cosmos rotating around the Earth and then of course we have the, Coper the Copernican inversion the Copernican revolution where Copernicus postulates 
and proves that, of course, that the Earth is rotating around the Sun and not the other way around, which is the metaphor, of course, for where you fall on that question. So if you believe in Ptolemaean astrophysics and Ptolemaean cosmology, you're going to have one rather flawed view of how the universe and the natural order functions. But if you have a Copernican one, then your mathematics and your understanding of reality are going to be based in what's true. So the question is, is the management of aggregate demand and and all of what we're seeing, the QE, the stimulus, is about constantly trying to pump demand. And obviously what we're seeing at the moment is, as I said to my young kids, all that currency, notice that I don't say money, I say currency, has to find a home. You know, the Dow Jones, at the time I'm recording this, two days ago, the Dow Jones, you know, broke 30,000 points for the first time since 1896. So how does it do that with COVID, unemployment, stimulus? I mean, some of you know the answer to that, but how is how could it not be an asset bubble? So this brings us back to this, you know, Ptolemaic or Copernican idea, this supply side versus demand side thinking. If you keep stimulating demand indefinitely by pumping fake money into the system and magically creating numbers on a central bank computer, what happens eventually when the music stops? And what concerns me about it, of course, is usually what happens is enormous social fragmentation, disconnection and violence. I've been teaching for years. We have to remember that we are an extremely tribal species. For all, you know, we've been you know, hominids for obviously millions of years. We've been Homo sapiens sapiens for about 350,000 years. Until about really maybe the last thousand years, give or take, we've existed in tiny, small family or tribal units and we either fled or tried to kill everybody else who wasn't in our tribe or family. That has been the essence of human existence for a very long period of time. And the concern of some of us is that if this, if really bad economic theory causes enormous social fragmentation, that has consequences. So we really want to get to the bottom of, you know, Jude mentions here, he talks about, um, you know, declining living standards. He says, you know, the social pathologies and uh, the issues that young people are facing. I mean, we can see those things all the time, but we often don't really question the economic basis of what might be driving it. So, friends, that's some of what I'm interested in. I'm interested in gold and silver because I I think that the case for them, and if a gold standard was to be re-established, I sold my crypto, but I'm like, I, I studied, I was accepted into Oxford and studied crypto economics and blockchain at Oxford and... I, I just don't see how central banks are going to allow cryptos free reign. And many of you are aware that, you know, central banks, are, well, the US Fed is working hard on a CBDC. And once that magical money gets pumped into, you know, people's, you know, central bank accounts, and then you're only given two weeks or three weeks to spend it, then the velocity of money goes through the ceiling, Right. But then, of course, central banks and government now knows where you spend every single dollar. So I do not see how sovereign nations and governments and central banks are going to surrender the field to cryptos. And Bitcoin as a payment rail is just not looking great. 
So I, at this point, don't see how cryptos beat gold or silver as a, as a standard. So hopefully we can talk about that in the coming episodes and see what people think. Well, that's it for now. Uh, we've got Nathan coming on next week. Wherever you're hearing this, you can find everything else you need to know on the website at supplysidepartners.com. Supplysidepartners.com. You'll find more about uh, me and what we're trying to do here, and uh, you can get in touch. Let us know who you think would be great people to interview in this broad discussion around classical economics, predictive classical economics, supply-side economics. You know, as I finish up, I think right at the core of my being is this belief that is it any more complex than the idea that if men and women are pretty much left alone to produce meaningful goods and services that other people want, and we get realistic price discovery. My, my little boy is 11 years of age and picked him up from school yesterday. We had a long talk about price discovery. It was the best thing we were talking about. I said, I said, mate, you know, if somebody is selling in Australia, we have this chocolate, like Mars bars, my American listeners, you know, these candy bars. And I was explaining to him, I said, you know, if somebody stood there and, and wanted to sell it for a billion dollars, how many people would they get? He's like, none, Dad. And I said, well, if they sold it for one cent, how many would they get? And he said, lots, Dad. And I said, but would they make profit? No, and we had this wonderful discussion to learn about price discovery. And I kept saying, I said, mate, governments need to get their snout out of markets and let people work. So I'd be interested to see what some of us think about free market theory, right? All right, friends, that's it for now. Thanks for taking the time to listen in. Please uh, get in touch. Let me know who you want me to talk to. And uh, you'll find everything you need at supplysidepartners.com. So please make sure you've subscribed. If you're hearing this on Apple, Google, Spotify, please hit subscribe. Leave a comment. uh, Rate it because that'll get it moving in the algorithms because it's all about algorithms. And uh, send it to some friends. All right, friends. My name's Jonathan Doyle. This has been the Supply Side Podcast. And I'm going to have another episode for you very soon.